Welcome to On Brand with Donnie Deutsch. I'm Donnie Deutsch. It has been a crazy year. We've had some great guests join the podcast. I want to take a moment to look back at some of my favorite conversations of the past year. First up, the amazing Stephen A. Smith, the host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast, as well as all the great things he does for ESPN. Here's a little Stephen A. You got, you got a big voice today. Uh, and I've just wise a guy in the media, uh, as a guy who's a big sports fan, as a guy who follows you, um, the voice keeps getting bigger and bigger and more important in our culture. Uh, I'm not blowing smoke up your ass. It just, it just is. You, you sit at the cross-section of sports and politics and culture and all the things that you, you know better than anybody. You feel a big responsibility? Of course I do. Um, and it's a challenge, uh, to be quite honest with you, because when you're a black man, listen, I've had friends that I love dearly, that I have incredible admiration for. And my relationship with them is suspect because they feel it may give them a license. Uh, I, they have carte blanche to tell me what they feel, but you don't get to make me agree with you. I, I, I decide what I feel. I decide what I believe. I decide what my thought process is, why I've come to be that way and how I'm going to operate accordingly. And a lot of times when you sit in my chair, there's an expectation uh, as a black man on the public airwaves, it's incredibly important that white folks understand something. And I've said this on many occasions publicly. You all come to work with a job to do every day. I come to work with a responsibility. And what I mean by that is that my community comes. So your first responsibility is interesting. You answer that question. Starts with race. Starts with, with, with your your identity right there. That's where you to some degree. To some yeah. degree, I mean, it's debatable whether it's first, but if it's this, if there's one, it's one A. It's right yeah, there. Right, it's right, right there. Right, right. You know, and 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 what I mean by that is that the community is coming at you, Donnie, and they're like, "You got to say this. You got to say that. You got to feel this way. You got to address this and that." I was expected to address Trayvon Martin when it happened. It wasn't a sports story. They don't yeah. care. You know, there's other things that's happened. It's not a sports story. They don't care, you know. And so you have that. And I'm one of those people. I feel an inherent responsibility to make sure that I give a voice to the voiceless, meaning that if you are, for example, the black community and you think this issue needs to be publicized and addressed, I feel that obligation. Where the period comes in, where the stop side comes in, is I don't feel an obligation to agree with you. To say to the masses, this is what folks are feeling, that's my obligation. But what I feel about it is my decision. And sometimes that's not aligned with my community. Most times it is, but sometimes it's not. And when that transpires, there's a level of friction that comes into play. I'm a businessman, for example. Um, I pay attention to who I represent. To me, when ESPN has an issue or Walt Disney has an issue and they're saying, okay, you could do that, but this is affecting our bottom line. I have an obligation to pay attention to that sure, and make a decision with that in mind because I'm not representing just myself. I'm representing a brand and I have an obligation that if I'm getting a check from the brand, at least be mindful and cognizant of what that brand would like. So when I do whatever it is that I do, I'm not oblivious to it. Some people don't give it a second thought. I'm one of those dudes who does because that's business. No matter where you go, no matter where you turn to, when you're representing someone more than just yourself, you have an obligation to at least be mindful and cognizant of what matters to them before 
you articulate the perspectives and make the decisions that you may make. I'm a believer in that. A lot of times when things happen in our society, you have communities that don't give a damn about that. They just want you to parrot what their feelings and their dialogue may be. And that's not something I always capitulate to. What's interesting, when you were talking about yourself in the first 10, 15 minutes of the interview, I don't say you subdued, but you weren't your normal animated self. As soon as I asked you about your responsibility, I talked about others and how you affect others, your your energy level, you 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 it, you you went into this place that is it is the essence of you. For you so much what's so interesting is you're such a huge individual presence, but your essence, and the book is about this. And what you feel your, your role in the media is, is how you affect others and the others and not yourself. And that's when you got animated. Well, I, I don't know how to explain it. I mean, you know, my, my, my colleagues and them always say, you know, they've seen me operate on two hours sleep. They've seen me work ridiculous hours. They've seen me do a lot of things. And then they say, but when the lights come on, this brother's something else. Yeah. And so that's what they've always said about me. And that's where I'm at. When I'm talking about me, when I'm talking about my life, meaning my personal life, like you were asking about earlier, that's a different thing because it's reflective. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm recalling. I'm, I'm, think, I'm thinking about the actual experiences that I've had, um, the lives that were affected by those decisions uh, that involved my life and that of others in my inner circle, whether it be my my four older sisters, my mom, my 15 nieces and nephews or whomever. I'm thinking about all of those things and I'm being very reflective and introspective when I'm talking about my career. It's like it's active, like yeah. it's like I'm in the moment. It, it's it's like the difference to use a sports analogy between somebody that wins a championship and is talking about what it was like at that particular moment when it was, when they were trying to win it between the difference between that and somebody that's shooting for a championship and talking about what they're going through right now. And so that's the only, that's the best way that I can yeah, explain yeah. it for you. And, you know, one is reflective and one is in the moment and it's very present and it's very constant. And when you ask me about my career and how I can be and how I am and where I am today, it's in the here and now. There's nothing to be reflective about, really. It's about, boom, this is on. Let's go. It's now. ESPN has done a dance over the years with politics. You know, all of a sudden, at one point in time, everybody got very, very political, and the ratings start to suffer. Yeah. And kind of you went back, went back to uh, let's stick with sports. Yet you as a personality have gone so beyond that. One of the reasons you're doing your No Mercy podcast. Yep. It's funny you got you went on the View this week. You talked about the, the perils of Donald Trump that we can both agree on. We could do six hours on that, um, <laughs> which uh, just I the most dangerous human being. Yeah, I, I mean the fact what's really ridiculous is that after four years, forty percent of this country raised their hand and said yes, we'll take four more. We'd like him again. That's what's stunning about it. And still today, and we we could spend obviously seventeen shows on it. So where where do you and you've talked about also your aspirations. You, everything from you'd run for president to taking over Jimmy Kimmel. I, I get the feeling that staying on ESPN is going to be too small. For you. I, I don't know. How to say, that's the wrong words when I say that, that in order for you to kind of really do what you want with no blinders on, with no guardrails on, you're going to have to find, I don't want to say a bigger stage, a broader stage. So for instance, if I was at CNN and I came mm -hmm. to you when your contract's up in two and a half years and said, we're going to give you the nine o'clock spot. And you do with it what you want, that that would be something that would be 
where you really want to be at the end of the day? Well, I wouldn't go that far. I wouldn't say that I'd want to be someplace more than ESPN. I love ESPN. I, I, love know, you, I know you. I, I love working for ESPN. The problem with the biggest problem with ESPN is, as it pertains to me, Donnie, is not that I want to be at CNN or Fox News or MSNBC or something like that. The biggest problem ESPN has is that I want to be at Disney. You know, I yeah. have an aspiration to produce scripted and unscripted content in television and film. I have an aspiration to do late night. I have an aspiration to 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 make some noise and to extend beyond the realms of sports to do other things like this podcast. No mercy. That's the issue, you know. And and it's not like it's a bad thing, you know. For it's not me, bad thing at all. No. For me, when I look at at ESPN, it's like the 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 parameters under which they'd like me to work. Like in other words, watch yourself. Be careful. Of course, these guardrails. That doesn't affect me. It's the obstacles that affect me. In other words, you telling me I need to be guarded is entirely different than telling me I can't. Yeah. That's when it gets now that's when it gets thick because I've got two and a half years left on my deal. I'm incredibly happy at, at being a part of the worldwide leader. Uh it's done immense uh, an immense amount of things for my life and my livelihood and for me. I'm eternally grateful. I'm not tired of being in sports. I love it. It's a part of me. I never want to let it go. It's just that I don't want that to be all that I'm about. Mm -hmm. And so for me, as long as that's understood, I'm fine. We can work out deals and I could retire there. But if they said to me, we don't want you doing anything else of course. but this, then I've got two and a half years left and my career will be elsewhere. That's how I view it. A lot of your shows uh, over the years is, is conflict is, is one of the essences of it. I mean, it's just, and you said something that really kind of took me. You said, to be candid, uh, you said, we capitalize on the kind of polarization people supposedly abhor. And yep. one, of, one of the obvious, and I, I, sometimes I laugh, you guys are go, going so crazy at each other and it's, it's sports. But you, so on the one hand, we have this societal problem right now that we are so polarized and we are so divided more so mm -hmm. than ever and that's it. Yet, that's so much of what you do. Do you ever say to yourself, "Wait a second, how do I how do I do good TV yet at the same time not be this uh, not be walking right into what is kind of the essence of our problems?" And you guys are just fighting about sports. You're not fighting about other stuff. But yet, it's still about the fight. It's still about polarization. I'm on one side. You're on the other side. Watch. But I do it every day, Donnie. And so to me, I don't have to stop and think about anything. It's an active part of my life. And how do I combat that? Because we're having a conversation. We're debating about the top topics in a heated fashion. We're also laughing. We're also right. cracking jokes. Yeah. Uh -huh. We're uh -huh. also hugging one another. Uh -huh. You know what I'm saying? There it is. And, there and, it is. And, yeah. and going from segment to segment to segment because I'm making sure on every show that while we're doing that on first take, we're letting the audience know, we're having a good time. It's the entertainment and sports programming network, in this case that you're talking about here. We have a people with a potpourri of views and viewpoints and perspectives. So what? It's no big deal. The, the whole point of it is that we respect one another, but we're going at one another is expressing our viewpoint and may the best man and woman win. Yeah. It's really that simple. Politics is different. You're messing with people's lives. You're very serious about it. 
You're antagonistic. You're insulting. You're insidious. You're divisive. You're all of these things. And while doing so, you have the audacity to be liars talking to the American people about one perspective or another just to curry votes. And then you go up on Capitol Hill and you contribute to the divisiveness in this world, but you don't want to live under those same rules yourself. If you are talking trash, how in God's name, Donnie, are we supposed to, all right, border security, the economy, uh, the, 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 the federal deficit, um, the list goes on and on. How are you supposed to sit up there and say, you know what? If I'm a Republican, it's their fault. They don't know what the hell they're doing. All they care about is this woke culture. All they care about is getting what they want. They're corrupt. They're liars. They're this, they're that. And the Democrats, these guys, they want to take you back to the days of pre-civil rights. They want to keep you in chains. They want to do this. They want to do that, blah, blah, blah. But then you're going to go to the negotiating table and talk with each other. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't work. That's not how the real world works. You've been a businessman a hell of a lot longer than me. I'm just learning to be a businessman for crying out loud for (laughs) years. You've been a businessman for years. Tell me where that works. We all know better. We all know better. They do it. Not only does it not work, 90% of us live in what I call a wardrobe of purple. You yourself, you're a fiscal conservative. You're a a hawk, a security hawk. I'm the same way. I'm progressive on all social issues. That's where most of us live. And yet, for some reason, we can't, they don't fucking get it. It's just, it's just. They try to convince us. They try to convince us we have to take both sides. I started out this podcast one time. I think it was my first or second week doing a podcast. I, they, they try to sit up there and say, you're for, you're, you're pro, you're pro right. You're, you're, you're pro rights or you're not, you know, you're pro life rather. I'm sorry. Or you're not. I said, no, the hell I'm not. I am a man who does not support abortion, but I support a woman's right to choose. Mm-hmm. Who the hell are you to tell me? I can't be both yeah. in my life. I'm telling you, I wouldn't want to have anything to do with an abortion, aborting a child. But I am not going to sit at a look at look a woman in the face and tell her I have a right to make that choice for her. That is her choice. I am all for legal immigration. Am I against illegal immigration? Yes. But am I a proponent of keeping children separated from their parents? Uh, 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 locked in tents for crying out loud for months upon months at a time? No, I am not. Oh, then you got to pick one or the other. No, I do not. It's your job on ta- on Capitol Hill to figure out a damn way to maneuver us through this terrain so we don't have this level of division in our country. But we've gotten to a point where the politicians have gotten away with, uh, uh, you know, obviously, figuratively speaking, they've got a, they've gotten away with murder because what happens is, is that, Donnie, they don't have to work. That is the ultimate crime. You have to campaign. But once you campaign, do you realize, Donnie, you don't have to read a bill? All you have to do, if you're a Republican, side with the Republicans. If you're a Democrat, side with the Democrats. That's it. You don't even have to read the bills. You don't have to work. Because the sides are so divisive, they're so divided that whether it's Mitch McConnell or before it was Nancy Pelosi, you know, and 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 now you're just looking at it and you're just saying you don't have to work, and that's the problem. They don't have to negotiate. All they have to do is stand firm, and the work is all in making sure we're a united front. That's it. 
My thanks to Stephen A. Smith for joining us in the podcast. Up next, my longtime friend, Mika Brzezinski. Let's join the conversation. Take us to you ending up at Morning Joe, the birth of Morning Joe and how that, because obviously most of the people listening here obviously are, are Morning Joe viewers. And I don't know if they know how the sausage originally, how you came together with Willie and Joe, how that happened. I, I know the backstory, but please share it. So it's so interesting. So I, um, I, I was looking for jobs and I was, of course, I believed I could never get a job in television again. And that attitude led to a lot of really bad interviews. You were looking, thinking about going into PR. I mean, you were like ready to like throw in the towel. Yeah. And when I went to TV, if I did get an interview, like uh, I went to Fox News, I had an interview at Fox News. Wow. And I literally walked in there with fire written across my forehead. And that's again... A lot of my know your value advice is like how to handle being fired and moving on to the next interview. And I I literally had trouble in the moment in these interviews because I, I think I believed that I didn't have value or something. And that's why you need to know it. But I ended up almost taking a job in at a PR company. They were about to bring me in for the final round of interviews where you just met with two people separately as mm-hmm. opposed to, you know, a whole a whole like dating game where you went around the building and met everybody and i felt like the interview was going to be an offer it felt like the closest it could come and it was a job that made really good money and i remember being in my pickup truck um and i had an old pickup truck with plastic seats and i it broke it kind of like kept kept like conking out and i'd have to restart it and I remember I got this um, email while the car had broken down and I was reading it, do you want to come in? And I picked up the phone and I called the guy and I said, listen, this job's not for me, but I do know somebody who is just leaving CBS who would be perfect for it. And she ended up getting the job and thriving there. She was my producer and she was also fired in or whatever the word is in, in a whole round of layoffs or whatever it was that was happening at the time. So that's when in my heart, I knew I'm going to have to figure out how to get back into television, even in this state, because it's what I do. And I can't, I can't even let myself take another job. Yeah. So I remember firing my agent, calling up MSNBC because I had worked there before and being like, listen, I want to know what jobs you have, any jobs, because they were like, we don't have a job. You've been high up at CBS. We don't have a job you would want. I said, I know you've told me that. Now I need to know what jobs you have. Yeah, there's sometimes a great lesson. Sometimes you got to take a half a step backward to take three steps forward. People or need to understand that. a huge step back. Yeah, yeah. So they were like, well, we had a freelance reading cut-ins on the overnights. And I was like, oh, that is, that, now that's painful because I'm not good on, a, I, yeah. I did that, it really hurt. And they said, well, some of the ships end at 11 p.m. I was like, I'll take it. I'll take it. And so I went in, I went in, I got, I've literally, you can, when you're freelance day rate, you can start like the next day. Yeah. Um, so I, I remember driving to Secaucus and going, doing the paperwork and the job was honestly, you know, a big, a big step in a different direction from what I had been, but it was in television. It was communicating, it was telling stories and it allowed me a step back in. And I remember Donnie getting my MSNBC card. And taking the picture at Mika Brzezinski, MSNBC, and it has a little thing that you, you click in, it goes beep. And I remember the first time I did that, I almost cried. I was like, oh, I am working again 
in the industry that I love and I'm working again. And I, I did the cut-ins beautifully. I kept getting asked to do more cut-ins. I started getting asked to host shows. And all of a sudden I was freelance hosting shows for a several hundred dollar day rate. I was a full on host. <laughs> I love it. Love it. <laughs> so I'm like another raw deal, but at least I'm working. Um, and then, and then that whole thing, I don't know if you remember this whole Don Imus situation. Yeah. Just, he got thrown off the air for saying something very, very derogatory towards young African-American women. And then they were trying a bunch of different things in the morning. They tried a bunch of different stuff in the morning. Don Imus was like, it was the biggest ratings yeah. at the time. Off, 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 off brand, but still they were, they were getting big numbers. It's it, what it, they had back then. Yeah. It's a long time ago. As yeah. we know, we're at almost 16 years. Yeah. So, um, and they, so they were trying different things. And they were absolutely not thinking of me. And of course, I was absolutely not thinking of myself. So I was doing my cut-ins and I was perfectly, I was, I was okay. And I was hosting and doing stuff for nightly news. And I, I figured out something would come out of it. And um, then I guess Joe was doing a show. Actually, it's so funny. At 9 p.m. Joe did a show. At 9 p.m. Scarborough so, Country, right. Yes. He did a show. And so I would do a cut-in and toss to you know, here's the news at the White House, blah, 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 big storm front coming up the East Coast. That's the latest. Now back to hardball. Or that's the news. Sure. Now back to Scarborough Country. Right. And I remember never seeing Scarborough Country because I'd rip off my IFB, the earpiece, and go back and work at my desk and talk to my producer. And I never really watched these shows in the evening. So <laughs> I remember Joe, because I guess I would have fun with my toss because uh -huh. they'd be like 10 five, four, and I would push it to the very edge and be like, now back to hardball. Right. Or now back to, and they'd be like, two, one, Scarborough country. And I'd kind of say it like, and just have fun with the timing because right. I was really, <laughs> I knew I knew how to time out yeah. perfectly. Um, and Joe came up, I guess, to make a pitch for Morning Joe. Yeah. He had created the whole show in his head. Yeah. I mean, we need to talk about the brilliance of Morning Joe okay. and what he did. Yeah. Because, and really the, the space Phil Griffin, Phil Griffin gave him to do it because it's really amazing. Yeah, the world he's created incredible. And all in his head. He had a PowerPoint presentation. He went into Phil's office and he was like, I've got, I need three smart people. I've already picked them. And I met Joe in the hall of MSNBC and he comes up to me, he goes, you're Mika Brzezinski. And I was like, and you are? He's like, come on. <laughs> I know you're making fun of my show. My friends already told me you're making fun of my show, Scarborough Country. And I was like, I wouldn't make fun of a show I've never watched. <laughs> and he was like, damn. And, and so he goes and calls Phil. He's like, that, the woman who does the cut-ins, she's really smart because he, funny. Yeah, but what he also saw that you guys immediately had this Banter. It just had like it, nobody scripted it. No, and, and in your chance meeting, what would they call in Hollywood a me cute? Even then, you yeah. had this weird kind of little controversy back and forth, a little energy, a little tension. And he knew that because at, at his core, he's a producer. Uh, I mean, he's obviously he's obviously a brilliant talent. You know, he's a producer, a director, a lighting designer, a sound designer. Literally, it you know. We don't, I mean, first of all, we have the most amazing team now that takes care sure. of everything. And so I'm not to take up, but he really, he had a vision for what we're doing today 
then. Yes. And by the way, so did I five minutes after we started doing Morning Joe together because he, he he convinced me to to come in for the audition. And I was like, oh, God, mornings again. I'm Now I'm doing nights back to mornings. Honestly, I can't get a leg up in this business. It's it's like, that's fine. I, I love it. I'll do it. Um, and so, but I do, I am like the queen of the worst schedules ever, right, Donnie. Right. I for overnights for 35 years, but I'm, I, I'm so absolutely grateful. Every morning I wake up, I think of the day I was fired and yeah. I get right up. I love joy. it. I love it. Um, but, you know, he went to Phil. Phil said, no, okay, all right, just try it. And so we had a week where we did the show together. And five minutes into um, the show, I looked around and I said, this is really good. Yeah. He's really good. Chris Licht is really smart. Yeah. Willie's fantastic. And when we had a moment, I said, this is going to be, this show is going to be so important. It is important. So is going to, you are going to create yourself as the voice of the political landscape. And then I turned to Willie. You can ask Willie. I said, Willie, you are so talented. You're going to have your own show someday on the network, but this is going to be what you do. where we see Willie in every aspect oh, he's, of it. He's such a superstar. Why you get that show. And I literally predicted both of their futures, but not mine. Because <laughs> that was that was a, that was the essence of not knowing your value. Yes. Um, so when did you know you you knew after five minutes? I love the story of when you guys after your first taping, uh Tom Brokaw calls up Phil Griffin and goes, Joe Scarborough, who knew? <laughs> and that's when you knew. Because he he obviously is a very opinionated, you know, I, yeah. we'll, we'll leave it at that. But for him to acknowledge that, that was an early precursor. Zucker also came down and was like, and I can't even say what he said, but everyone was popping into Phil's office going, how did you know how to do this? Yeah. Like, and Phil is so great. He's like, you know, you let people be who they are. And yeah. he did. Yeah. He really did. Um, I mean, he was skeptical about me at first, but in a way that you would be skeptical if your host is like, I want that person, you know, you, yeah. have, you kind of don't want to give the talent that like you want to, but Joe was able to choose all of us. Cause it wasn't like all great creative things are not done by committee. They're done by a vision of usually one or two people who have it and he had it and he saw it through and it continues to grow. I'm blown away of the impact of that show. Look, I'm on the show once a week for an hour or two, uh, wherever I go. This is the show of consequence of people whom people who just are thinkers in our society watch this show. I don't want to say C-suite. I don't want to say it's just if you have a brain and you're watching TV in the morning, I don't want to offend anybody or anything else. This is where you go. And it really matters. I know as something because I'm not on all the time, so I'm a viewer and it's an important part of my day, not because I'm part of the show. And people really feel that way it is uh, people need their morning it's it, it's it's i can't think of another show on television that holds the importance it has with its audience that this show has well we take it really seriously and by the way donnie you're like part of the morning joe family thank and you there day i mean from the beginning i was there since um, two, two, 2000 and i think i came on the second year i think it was 2010 so were we in 30 rock yet yeah, you were in 30 Rock. You were already in 30, I think. Yeah, must have been just starting at 30 Rock. So, gosh, I mean, we sometimes are blown away by people that we will meet 
Joe was recently in Ireland and he has viewers in Ireland at airports, the conversations we have with people, um, people who view the entire show every day, which is now four hours because they're sick or they're, they're doing cancer treatment. And honestly, that's the other reason I get up in the morning and Joe gets up, even though he has tinnitus, he has yeah. a bad back. I mean, it's a lot of pain in his life and he tries really hard not to let it get in the way of being on Morning Joe because we recognize, um, I mean, I personally, I say with respect for for Joe, the, the platform he has created, yeah. but we recognize the impact we have and we want to be really careful with it. And we're not perfect. It definitely has been tough over the past five years, the way it's changed. You know, it came together as a show where you could have a great honest debate in a in a sea of instability you know where you could have a civil conversation a civil debate yeah and that's been harder to do and there are people who unfortunately we can't have on because they're not willing to have a civil honest conversation and we've had to add that to the description of our show because right now there are shows that are not so honest and i didn't know that we had to actually make that a, a selling point but it is yeah we're we we talk about the facts and we can't have people on who who we, where we have to debate what a fact is no and that's hard that was the great mika brzezinski you can see her every morning of course on my favorite show morning john msnbc We'll close out this episode with some of my conversation with General David Petraeus, the former director of the Central Intelligence Agency and retired United States Army General. You obviously have uh, understand the apparatus of our entire defense system. How stretched will we, we obviously now have two major uh, wars that we are involved in that we will have to help. And does that tax the system or are we set up to handle that? No, I think it does tax the system, but I think we are capable of responding to that. Uh, we're already, for example, ramping up production of certain munitions that are being expended in Ukraine, for example, at an extraordinary rate. You know, I think about how many artillery rounds we shot just, say, during the fight to Baghdad, uh, and it's probably about one day's worth of uh, Ukrainian expenditure, if that. Uh, and so we're dramatically increasing the production, for example, of 155 millimeter howitzer rounds some of the rockets, all these different, the air defense systems. And just as we are also now rushing to Israel, uh, the additional Iron Dome interceptors uh, that we have and other munitions that they will need, some precision munitions and so forth. Um, that is crucial. We'll have to, I think, a lesson, in fact, that our country and the countries of NATO, and I, I'm all, it was just over there uh, as well in, in Warsaw for the Warsaw Security Forum, the big takeaway for European countries is not only that, yes, they do need to spend 2% of GDP on defense, as they all agreed with NATO, but of course, Germany, prominent among them, had not been doing that prior to the invasion of Ukraine, but also that they have to dramatically increase their military industrial base, uh, that wars like we see in Ukraine, obviously, uh, are no longer a thing of the past. Uh, and so we have to think our way through that. It has implications for uh, elsewhere in the world. But, you know, we have an 850 or more billion dollar defense budget, more than the next eight or nine or 10 countries uh, spend together uh, in any given year. And we can do this uh, and we can actually carry out missions in other parts of the world as we are. 
Although we do need to accelerate the transformation of our capabilities from what are termed legacy systems, uh, largely a very small number of very large platforms, which are very useful, shouldn't be done away with, but should be reduced relative to increasing uh, the development and production of a massive number of much smaller systems, unmanned systems that are either remotely piloted or over time increasingly algorithmically piloted where the human in the loop is the human who actually writes the software, develops the conditions that the machine meets before it takes a kinetic or non-kinetic action. And this is not just in the air where we've used these very extensively uh, all the way back to when I was in various commands in Iraq and Afghanistan and Central Command, uh, but on the surface of the sea where we're seeing, by the way, Ukraine do this very effectively, have forced the Russian fleet further and further offshore uh, from southern Ukraine, and they had to evacuate the bulk of their ships from the port of Sevastopol uh, in Crimea because they have the range to hit them there with these drones. They even have subsurface drones now with very substantial munitions on them, and they're developing ground systems as well. So that's the future of warfare. And although we see hints of that in Ukraine, it's not at all what it will be uh, if we bring our advanced systems to bear. But we need to hasten that transition because that's the essence of deterrence uh, in the Indo-Pacific in particular. We have to, above all, the number one task for America and our Western allies and partners is to ensure that what our national security advisor has described as severe competition with China does not erupt into true conflict. You know, the money spent on deterrence inevitably is very well worth it compared with the money you spend on conflict. Along those lines, obviously, the third pressure point in addition to Ukraine, the Middle East, is what's going on potentially with China and Taiwan. And you write, we can be certain the military lessons from Ukraine are being studied very carefully by the high command of the People's Liberation Army, and that a good deal of intensive staff work is currently being undertaken in Beijing to apply these lessons to the case of Taiwan. And you say this is potentially, and, and obviously, not obviously, the most explosive situation because what happened in, with, with Taiwan would bring the two superpowers to the table face-to-face. That's correct. And again, what we've got to do is make sure that every morning when folks get up in Beijing, uh, the most senior leaders look at the situation and say, not today. Uh, and then at some point in time, we can get back to uh, an understanding that it would probably be much more mutually beneficial uh, if we could cooperate on a lot more uh, and compete or conflict uh, a lot less. Obviously, General Milley, what he did, I found to be heroic when he reached out to China to assure them during when what January 6th was happening and Trump called him a tre- treasonous and in another time he'd be executed. I just love your reaction to that. Well, I have a lot of respect uh, for Mark Milley. We served together numerous times over the years. He's a Princeton undergraduate. I'm a Princeton graduate. So we have the Princeton in the nation's service uh, affinity as well, fellow infantrymen, a lot of time in the combat zones, uh, I think served our country exceedingly well. Uh, and I think what leaders do at that level, I was the executive officer for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs for a couple of years when I was a colonel, had a great vantage point on that. Um, our chairman at that time, the great General Hugh Shelton, reached out repeatedly At that time, the counterpart that mattered most was the chief of the general staff uh, of the Russian Federation. Um, I remember one time flying all the way to, I think it was Vienna, 
uh, just so the chairman could have lunch with him and then literally turn around and flew back to make a meeting at the White House. Again, these relationships are important. Even though we were adversaries, sure. um, you do need to communicate. At the height of the Cold War, um, we were actually reaching arms control agreements. In fact, I worked for the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe when we did the Intermediate Nuclear Force Agreement. So I think it's entirely appropriate, especially when there might be a, a misperception of a situation in the United States. Um, you know, there was outreach like this reportedly uh, during the final weeks, days uh, of the Nixon administration as well. So again, I think it's very important to have communicate. One of the challenges right now uh, and the reason that the administration is working hard to try to establish some workable relationships with China and have guardrails, if you will, and a floor for the relationship uh, is because of concern about lack of communication. You'll recall when that uh, Chinese surveillance uh, balloon floated over the United States, uh, they picked up the hotline in the Pentagon and no one answered in Beijing. That is not good. We also need ship to ship, bridge to bridge as the term communications out in the South China Sea. You don't want to see something that goes bump in the night erupt into conflict. Uh, and so, again, communications are very important. And I think that was what it was that he was seeking to do. You've used the set of words and you've referenced this. So how does it end, which is so critical in any warlike situation? And you led the troops in Afghanistan and you've been outspoken uh, about the withdrawal. Talk to me about how you see the state of, of Afghanistan today and what what you would have had, what not what you would have done, but what, what would have been a better solution? Well, as unsatisfactory as the situation was, um, as maddening as it was, given the imperfections of some of our Afghan partners and of our Pakistani partners who refused to take action uh, against the Taliban and the Haqqani network, who were the major elements of the insurgency causing such difficulty for our Afghan partners and coalition forces, despite all of that, um, I felt uh, both when the decision was first made to withdraw and the agreement was reached, and then when the new administration decided to follow through with it, that the prospects were likely going to cause us, after the fact, to question the decision that we made. Uh, and, and I said as well, several weeks prior to the uh, collapse of the Afghan forces that I feared they would psychologically collapse because we didn't just pull out our troops. We pulled out the 17,000 contractors that maintained the sophisticated U.S. helicopters that we insisted on providing to them by American. I understand the impulse, but they couldn't maintain those. They could maintain the old Russian and Soviet versions that we were still getting when I was privileged to be the commander there. Uh, and that was the linchpin of the entire defense strategy for the Afghans, that they have modestly equipped and trained troops in all the population centers and protecting critical infrastructure. And then you have a 35,000 strong Afghan commando force, quite well equipped, quite well trained and proven over the years. And when they get hit out in the hinterlands, the commandos get on helicopters and go out there, reinforce them uh, and resolve the situation. Uh, when that component of it, when the mobility component uh, is eliminated, and it did because the operational readiness degraded very quickly, and then they're hit in multiple locations. Once the troops realize nobody's coming to the rescue, you had troops who previously fought very hard. I thought it was very unfair to say the Afghans wouldn't fight. The Afghans fought very hard. They'd lost 16 times the soldiers and policemen that we lost uh, in that 20-year involvement. 
but they're not going to continue to fight if no one's coming to the rescue and they're getting overwhelmed and they see their political leader get on a helicopter and, and head to the Central Asian states. So um, I, I said then that I fear that we would come to regret the decision. I believe we should have because I think the outcome is not just heartbreaking um, and tragic. I think it's disastrous. Half the population can't even go to high school, much less to college, can't participate meaningfully in the economy, can't even travel around, be on the streets in many cases without a male escort. Uh, and then you have half the population as well that's uh, basically starving. Uh, so again, yes, it was a maddeningly imperfect, frustrating situation, but I felt that keeping 3,500 troops on the ground when we hadn't lost a soldier in 18 months, not just because of this agreement with the Taliban, this very flawed agreement, but because we were no longer on the front lines. It was the Afghans who were fighting and dying for their country. We were providing advice, assistance, and enablers, enablers meaning close air support, uh, drones, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, emergency logistics, and so forth. And again, very, very uh, frustrating situation because it wasn't all we'd hoped it would be, but I felt that that was better than what would follow. And I believe that that is the case. And of course, witness that within a short period of time, the leader of Al-Qaeda who succeeded Osama bin Laden is found in a house within a few blocks of the Afghan White House, the presidential palace, uh, and of course, in a very impressive operation that, that has been acknowledged, uh, our forces took him out. My thanks again to all my guests that joined On Brand this year. Be sure to tune in next week. We will revisit conversations with Chris Christie, Lawrence O'Donnell, and Jake Tapper. I want to take this time to wish all of you a happy holidays and remind you to rate, review, and follow the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.